0: Welcome to IBS Chat from the IBS Patient Support Group. I'm Jeffrey Roberts, the IBS expert and founder of the IBS Patient Support Group website and social media platforms and creator of World IBS Day held every April 19th. I was diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome at age 16 and I've lived with IBS for over 25 years. It's my mission to educate people living with irritable bowel syndrome and to raise awareness about research and treatment options and what it's like to live with IBS. The IBS Patient Support Group is a community to inform and support irritable bowel syndrome sufferers and can be reached at ibspatient.org. Supporting IBS patients is something that I think of every day because the quality of life of an IBS patient and those that support them is very important to me. Episode number 4 Dr. Mark Pimental is the program director of the medically associated science and technology program known as MASC. He is an associate professor of medicine and associate professor of gastroenterology at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. He and I met at Digestive Disease Week in San Diego to talk about his research. Dr. Pimentel is currently the head of the Pimentel Laboratory focusing on research related to motility disorders, including irritable bowel syndrome and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or SIBO. For a time, IBS was thought to be a psychological disease, however the Pimentel lab discovered a blood test to provide a definitive diagnosis showing that IBS is an organic disease. Having a definitive diagnosis for IBS paved the way for additional research in the Pimentel lab to treat the condition. In this podcast, Dr. Pimentel elaborates on the possible mechanism behind IBS and the role that SIBO plays. Is IBS a diagnosis of exclusion or inclusion? If I have food poisoning, will I develop IBS? Here's Dr. Pimentel. We first spoke about 20 years ago, and I've been entirely grateful that you've dedicated your career to trying to unravel the symptoms which cause IBS. It started with a better understanding of SIBO, or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and it's led you down a path of the gut microbiome and interactions with the digestive system. Is that too simplistic a way at looking at it?
1: Well, as everything in science is, it always starts off simpler than it becomes, uh, and over time I call it regression to the truth because eventually you figure out more things and more things and more things and it becomes more clear. I think IBS compositionally as a microbiome disease, which I can say for real, IBS is a microbiome disease now, compositionally is going to be breaking up into groups. So we have the IBS-D and mixed which are probably related to food poisoning, Uh, maybe we'll get into that later. And then the IBS-C, which seems to be related to methane and methanogens, and the mechanism of that is unclear, but also interesting, and a microbiome connection between IBS and, and the microbiome.
0: So the percentage of your patients that you're seeing, I, mean, I imagine that it's quite specialized, but I mean, are you seeing a combination of uh, SIBO patients, or are you finding IBS patients that then you realize that it's probably SIBO?
1: So this is always a challenge for patients to understand, so I'm going to try and frame it in a way that I think makes sense for people, is that when you go back to the 1980s when we were looking at ulcers, so let's say you had 100 people who came in with a peptic ulcer or an ulcer in their stomach. Eventually, people found out that H. pylori was the cause of ulcers, but not everybody, about 60 or 70%. The rest could have been Advil, overuse, or not Advil, but ibuprofen, you know, NSAIDs. And and so, the the point is, we didn't change the name from peptic ulcer disease to H. pylori disease, nor should we change the name from IBS to SIBO. SIBO is, the H. pylori of IBS, and seventy percent of IBS have SIBO, and it's the mechanistic cause of a fraction or a large subset of IBS. So I think you've got got to look at it in that way, because IBS is a constellation of symptoms, but SIBO is the mechanism by which the constellation occurs in two-thirds of patients.
0: Okay, so kind of along that theme, um, IBS has been a, a diagnosis of exclusion f- for quite some time, meaning you exclude all the other conditions that may cause these symptoms and are left with a diagnosis of IBS. Do you feel that that's still the case?
1: Another part of my career has been to try to make IBS a diagnosis of inclusion. I mean, it's part of the reason we develop you know, even today we're going to be uh, talking about the second generation blood test because I want patients to walk away from my clinic saying, I have IBS, I know, I have a blood test in hand that says it was caused by food poisoning and I'm 98% sure. That's what I want. I don't want IBS to be a diagnosis of exclusion because, you know, it, it, it's something I see all the time. Patient goes to a doctor's office, doctor does a whole bunch of tests, colonoscopy, et cetera. The patient pays a huge copay. At the end of the day, everything's negative. There's a tremendous amount of disappointment on the medical side because they say, well, nobody found anything. There's a tremendous amount of disappointment when they go home and they open the mail and they find a bill. And at the end of the day, they're like, well, is the doctor sure this is IBS? Maybe I should get another opinion. And, and I want to stop that. I want this to be a diagnosis of inclusion. And the blood test helps that. Uh, it's you know, If both markers are positive, you're 98% sure. And that's huge.
0: Wow. Uh, so we talked earlier uh, about food poisoning, and I, I kind of gave you my history about food poisoning. Uh, and it, it's coming up now as it really is a cause for IBS. Does your research continue to support this? Do you think it's really the ultimate cause of IBS? Is it the smoking gun of causes in terms of food poisoning? Well, so in
1: 2019... And I know there are doctors out there who don't know because they don't, you know, they don't come to the meetings or it's in primary care, hasn't reached primary care yet, but I think the Clem article from Mayo Clinic, which is the third meta-analysis, so it's not the first, but it is the most definitive. Forty-five outbreaks of gastroenteritis were studied and meta- meta-analyzed in that paper. And I, I can say 100 percent for sure a portion of IBSD and mixed are caused by food poisoning clear. I mean, we know now more because of this type of work and the work we've been doing with animals, that we know more about the cause of IBS than we do IBD now. Because there is no trigger. We don't know the smoking gun for IBD. But for IBS we now have one smoking gun, and that's food poisoning, and particularly Campylobacter.
0: Okay, so tomorrow, I'm actually, or actually a couple of days from now, I'm going to be speaking about the IBS uh, Smart Test, which will help patients identify whether they actually do have uh, IBS D. So, kind of a final question, somewhat related to that, is how do a patient take all of the research that you've done and your team has been doing, and kind of put t- put it together with a treatment plan for their symptoms? Um, so.
1: Everything we're trying to do or that we've done has come to this current moment where we know IBS is a microbiome disease. We have a drug on the market, Rifaximin, which treats IBS as a microbiome disease. The interesting sort of sidebar to that is we've looked at the number of patients being referred to tertiary care for IBSD, and that's going down. So in a similar way, again, reflecting back on H. pylori, we're starting to see less IBSD at higher levels of care because lower levels of care are recognizing it's a microbiome disease and treating it as such, and therefore we don't see them. And yet we're seeing a ton of IBSC because physicians haven't recognized methane as much as they have the SIBO side of this equation. And so we need to do more work on that side. And considering also the fact that how many drugs are there FDA approved for IBSC? We've got so many drugs approved for IBS-C, yet I'm seeing more IBS-C now than I ever was. So it, it's a reflection on the fact, two, two facts. Number one, we need to do better with IBS-C. Number two, making patients have diarrhea with drugs isn't making them satisfied that the C is better.
0: It's very true. We, uh, in the IBS community, we joke about the fact that IBS D patients uh, want to be constipated and IBS C patients want to have diarrhea. But in fact, if you're mixed, you, you really don't want either side of it. So it's a very good perspective, actually, uh, to consider the patient side, that they wouldn't be very happy with either one. Um, thanks very much for taking the time uh, today because you have an incredibly busy schedule. So I really appreciate it.
1: It's my pleasure. Great talking
0: to you, too. Thanks.